Please turn with me to our text in this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. So we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow Me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed Him. And going on a little farther, He saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately He called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with his hired servants and followed him. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. You know, brothers and sisters, I was scrolling through social media this week and I seen the statement that someone made that they thought that the church had lost its power. And the statement was made in the context of what they viewed as the church's inability to reach people. But as I thought about it and I considered it, and I thought about the role of the church, the function of the minister, I don't believe that that's a fair assessment, especially now without some further clarification. Because if this is true, if the church has lost its power, then we must consider its implications. Because the church is the spiritual kingdom which God rules. It is the body of Christ indwelt by His Holy Spirit who make up the church. And it is God Himself who strengthens and empowers the church. And so if the church has lost its power, then perhaps the case could be made that God Himself has lost His power. Which could never be the case. But what might be true, what could be true, is that oftentimes churches and ministers alike shrug off the power of God in favor of their own power. And I believe this may be the reason that perhaps it may seem to some that the church has lost its power. I mean, with the introduction of innovation and novelty sweeping churches through leaders and churches, no matter how well-intentioned they are, all that does is served to weaken the church and debilitate it and to hurt the church in its witness. For large swaths of Christianity, they have abandoned the simplicity of worship in favor of extravagance. Extravagance of the worship service. Extravagance of the minister. And now, instead of feeding the sheep, feeding the souls of the sheep, right? they feed their desires. Instead of studying the Word of God, they study culture. Instead of caring for souls, they care about seats. 
instead of stripping everything away on the Lord's day and simply presenting Christ for the people to behold, they add more and more. More theater. More gimmicks. Which don't serve to reveal Christ to the people. Rather, all that does is hide Him. But the church that proclaims Christ and Christ alone, and the church that worships Him in spirit and in truth, no, the power has not been extinguished there to reach the unchurched. For there the Gospel is proclaimed, and wherever the Gospel is proclaimed, you can be sure that the power of God accompanies it. That is why Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, although, brothers and sisters, now we live in a culture of, of authenticity and individuality, which oftentimes means a refusal to follow a pattern and rather a desire to chart your own. And yet, in ministry, and in the Christian life in general, this can be very dangerous. Now, of course, we are all different. Right? We're different. We have, we have different likes and different dislikes. We're not cookie cutters. People like different music and people like different things to eat. Right? But that's not what we're talking about. If you are a Christian, we all serve the same Lord. And He has given us a pattern to imitate. And He has given us a message to proclaim which your, individual, which your individuality does not trump. And when we pattern our lives and our worship after His prescription, and when we pattern our message after His direction, then you can be sure that the power of God is in our midst. Is this not what we've learned from our study thus far in Mark? Mark, was introdu or Mark introduced right, right away to us, John the Baptist. And we read what? That John the Baptist came wearing the, the finest robe in the most beautiful church, eating the fattest steak. No, that's not what we read. John came in camel's hair. He was in the wilderness eating locusts and honey. You see, John didn't need all these things to attract people with his beauty. John didn't need to feed in to the sinful desires of men and women. He didn't need an elaborate building. He didn't need fine linen. John didn't need these things to powerfully work through the Word of God in proclaiming the Gospel. You see, people today know that people are led by the desires of the flesh. They're led by the desires of the eyes. They're led by the pride of life. And even church leaders know how to use that in order to attract people to come to church. They strategize right, by giving you all these things. But we see John the Baptist doesn't do that. And do we know why John doesn't do that? It is because John understood as a faithful steward of God that when the Word of God is proclaimed, theatrics and shows are not needed. When the Word of God is proclaimed. That is the centerpiece of worship. And we are simply to proclaim the Word of God. We are to proclaim the Gospel and not allow anything to distract from it. And when we do so, 
we move out of the way and allow God to do His work. And to the eyes of faith, there is nothing more beautiful and awe-inspiring than that. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in my, in my speech and my message were not made with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, if there's no power in the church, it's not God who's the issue. It is sinful man who thinks that they are more wise than the all-wise God who thinks that we can attract men by using our own craftiness, yet forgetting it is God who has come to save His people from their sins. Only He can do it. Ministers are mere weak vessels used by God to proclaim His Word. But we have the promise that when we do so, He will be amongst us. He says His Word will not go out in vain. It will not return void. For faith comes by hearing. Hearing, not some catchy pastor's words that oftentimes have nothing to do with the text. But faith comes by hearing the Word of God. This is what we saw from John as the masses came to hear what he was proclaiming. They wanted to come and hear what the herald was saying. And John proclaimed to them a baptism. A baptism of forgiveness for the remission of sins. He was declaring to them that one was coming who was greater than I who will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John just faithfully proclaimed the message that he was given. And because John did this, what happened? We read that he was imprisoned. Here we see the brevity of Mark once more in verse 14. Now after John was in prison, Jesus came. That's all Mark says. No more dialogue than that. After John was in prison, Jesus came. And so we see that it was John's imprisonment that signaled the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is what we are going to consider for the rest of this morning. Under two points. We're going to look at the two aspects of Jesus' public ministry that that Mark records for us in these seven verses. And so the first is proclaiming the Gospel. And the second is gathering disciples. So proclaiming the Gospel, gathering disciples. Now look once more with me then as we consider Jesus' teaching from verses 14 and 15. Mark records for us. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel we see that Jesus came not preaching the law, but the Gospel. So much preaching today is law. You must do these things if you want favor from God. But people walk out of church realizing they can never do those things. But instead, Jesus doesn't come with the message that the Israelites were given. Do this and live. But instead, He comes with the Gospel. Because the law isn't good news to the sinner. Because the law condemns the sinner. But Jesus comes with the message of grace and life. 
declaring glad tidings to all in His message was that the reign of the Messiah, which was foretold by the prophets, has come. And the Anointed One is here to save His people from their sins and to grant to them everlasting life. This is why Jesus comes saying, the time is fulfilled. The time has come for God to act in redemptive history. God promises ultimate redemption throughout the Old Testament. And He brings it in history, in the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ's first advent and in His ministry, we see the promise of Isaiah 61 fulfilled. In verse 1 of Isaiah 61, we read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We've seen that last week, as the Spirit descended upon our Lord. But it goes on to say, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And in fact, Jesus quotes this text. We've seen this in Luke chapter 4 as He reads the Isaiah scroll in the synagogue and He applies it to Himself. This is what Jesus says, I have come to do. To bring good news to the poor and to the afflicted. To heal the brokenhearted. And to bring liberty to the captives. And such were all of us bound and enslaved to sin, but Christ has come to set men and women and children free. No matter what race, no matter what country, no matter what age, no matter what your societal status is, this is the Gospel of God. A message of grace. This is a message that never loses relevance. But even more so today as we look at the landscape of our land. Doesn't this resonate today? This is the message that needs to go forth in pulpits across this nation. This is the message that needs to be proclaimed to the ends of the world. Trust in Christ. Believe in the person of Christ and His work and what He has accomplished. And you will have the grace of God. Because this is the message that has power. The power to transform the hearts and minds of people and cultures and societies and groups. But so often, the problem is the wickedness of the human heart. Man refuses God's grace because they are too blind to see their own poverty. Man is self-righteous. This is what we see that the scribes and Pharisees were guilty of. In Mark chapter 2, if you recall, the story of when Jesus is reclining at the table with the tax collector and the sinners. What was it that the scribes and the Pharisees said? Why does He eat with sinners? And Jesus responded, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And what was true of them is still true today. Self-righteousness abounds. But look where it gets us. People take sides, devouring one another. Everyone claims moral superiority. Everyone thinks they have the right answer. 
People try to scare others into submission by shaming them with their sin. Yet all the while not knowing that they themselves are dying because of their own sin. But this is why the fact that the kingdom of God has broken into human history is so important for us to understand. Jesus is saying the time is now. The wait is over. The kingdom that the Israelites were looking for was a political kingdom. They thought that the king was coming to conquer Rome and all of their enemies and to bring ultimate redemption to national Israel. But with Jesus came the inbreaking of not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. When Jesus came, true Israel came. And He came to gather not national Israel, but spiritual Israel. He didn't come to deliver us from Rome. He came to deliver us from sin and from death. What did Jesus say to Pilate? Right? My kingdom is not of this world. You can't see the kingdom unless you are drawn into it and given eyes to see it. But you can be sure whenever the kingdom is preached, whenever the gospel is preached, the kingdom is near. Whenever the gospel is preached, the kingdom is near. It has come. It has not come in its fullness. That deliverance won't arrive until Christ's second advent. But that does not mean that the kingdom is not here. It is both present and future. And you can be sure that the kingdom has come because the king has come. And the kingdom is God's sovereign reign and rule over His church in the hearts of His people, having secured redemption for all who have entered. And as King of His kingdom, He bestows upon us the gift of salvation and every blessing in that kingdom, even today. And because the King has come, and because the the time is now, He calls and demands two things from anyone who desires to enter that kingdom. What does He say? Repent and believe in the Gospel. You see, with the coming of the King and the bringing of the kingdom, all men have been confronted. This is such a significant act in redemptive history that it demands a radical reaction. And the only proper reaction to the good news of the Gospel is repentance and belief in that Gospel. Right? And there's this aspect though of repentance that I feel is, is oftentimes missing in preaching today. And yet that might coincide with a lot of uh, the shift from belief in the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. There's been a a shift in much of uh, evangelicalism now. That Christ didn't come as a substitute to die upon the cross for your sins and to make satisfaction. But rather He came because He loved us and He just wants to save us. And so if He didn't die for your sins, then what's the need of repentance? But we've seen last week as we looked at Christ that His very baptism showed to us the nature of His work and why He came. He came as a substitute, we said, right? He identified Himself with us 
in baptism. And in doing so, he acknowledged that his mission was to take upon himself our penalty from sin. His mission was to bear upon himself the wrath and the judgment of God. This is why repentance is necessary. Man must acknowledge before God his sinfulness. That apart from Christ, we would be forever separated from the love of God. And yet, so much of preaching today just calls you to accept Jesus into your heart. Just accept Jesus into your heart. Ask Him into your heart. There's so many things that are wrong with that message and incomplete. And one of those is that it is only through repentance that anyone will enter the kingdom of God. And so the message of ask Jesus into your heart and go on your merry way is no gospel message at all. We must be sorrowful for offending God. We must part and break with our old life and we must die to self. And yet, even doing so is only because God has granted us that repentance. And likewise, it is true of faith. Just like no one can muster up true repentance No one apart from God through the hearing of the Gospel and implanting faith into the heart of the believer by the Spirit can truly believe. But what is true faith? The Heidelberg Catechism quite nicely summarizes this for us in Lord's Day 7 in question 21 saying this, True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in the Word, but also a firm confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the Gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, the remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, and only for the sake of Christ's merit. And so it must be asked to all of us this morning, brothers and sisters, have you felt the weight of your sin? Do you grieve before a holy God as you recognize your own unworthiness and filthiness? Do you see the need for the Savior? Do you believe that He died in your stead upon that cross? And if you do, Have you trusted and laid hold of Christ and His merits by faith alone? Do you believe all that God has revealed to us in His Word? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? If you do, then you know something about the power of the Kingdom. You know that God's power has not ceased to influence the hearts and minds of all people whom God chooses. And so until He returns, we must continue proclaiming this message of repentance and belief in the Gospel. Knowing that God will continue to exercise sway over His kingdom until He returns and brings it to consummation. And yet, this was only one aspect of Jesus' ministry. 
He preached the Gospel. He came saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. But He also called disciples. Which leads us to our second point. Point two is gathering disciples. Look with me then at verses 16 to 20, please. Verses 16 to 20. We read this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. For anyone here who enjoys sports, you've probably had this conversation before. Or you've, or you've heard this conversation be had by others. And it's the conversation that answers the question, if you were to start your own sports team, who would you start your team with? Think about that. Whether it's you know, football, basketball, baseball. You know, if it was basketball, if you were smart, you'd say Michael Jordan. If it was football, maybe Joe Montana. Baseball, maybe Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron. But what is always the case even if we are to go out onto the playground and just play a game of dodgeball, what is always true is that you always pick and begin with the very best, don't you? You always pick the best. Nobody says, let me start my basketball team with the 12th man on the bench, do they? No. But this is why Jesus' ministry is so unique and so profound when you think about it. Because He did the very opposite of what our natural tendency tells us to do. Jesus does not begin the church by gathering the most notable of men. He doesn't go find the the most respected religious leaders. He doesn't go find kings and rulers. No, He begins His church with fishermen. With fishermen. It begins with the calling of two sets of brothers. Simon and Andrew first. And then James and John. But the profundity of the reason why and of this action is explained to us by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where we read this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, Jesus called those who were seen least among men so that God's power and glory might be shined brightest before all men. 
God called those who were seen least among men so that His power and His glory might shine brightest before all men. Now what we have to understand is that at this time, rabbis weren't going out searching for disciples. Disciples were searching for rabbis. I mean, think about it even today in school. right? As our teenagers get older, they apply for college. And then the college decides if you fulfill the requirements and if you're kind of good enough to get into our school. But you see, Jesus does the very opposite. Jesus goes out and finds for Himself students. And that's what disciples are. They are students. And the student's responsibility was to follow their tutor, to follow their teacher around, and to listen and to be a studious student to what your Master was teaching you. And so what Jesus was offering up to these four men were four seats in the school of Christ. That is what He was offering them. Four seats in the school of Christ. And what was their response? Their response was to give up everything and follow Christ. Now you have to understand, this was these men's livelihood. Simon and Andrew were fishermen. We read that they had their net already cast out into the sea when Jesus says, follow me. And what did they do? They left their boat behind. They left the net that was on the bottom of the sea behind and followed the Lord. What do we see from James and from John? Their reaction. They're mending their net. And Jesus says, follow me. And they stop mending the net and they leave even their father behind with his hired servants. You see, when I spoke earlier about Jesus and His proclamation of the Gospel and the Kingdom confronting all men necessarily requiring a radical reaction, this is exactly what I meant. These men were confronted with Christ and forsook all to be with Him. But this is what meeting Christ means for the Christian. A willingness to walk away from anything if He so demands it. I mean, think about when we were introduced to Christ. When we experienced Christ. Right? We walked away from our sinful lusts and desires. We walked away perhaps from family members or friends. Right? We, we were forced to lose them because we have accepted Christ. Right? Because we have received the truth of the message and no longer go on sinning with those people anymore. Perhaps some may have lost their job even. In other countries, you may have lost your life for Christ. But if you wish to be a disciple of the Lord, there is nothing that you can hold in priority over His call. When you experience Christ, there must be nothing that you are unwilling to depart with. But for those who are believers, that reality shouldn't be that hard. Especially if we believe the truth of the message. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you believe that He is the Son of God who has come down, taken upon Himself the form of a servant, if He lived a perfect life, if He suffered and died on the cross and yet now He is risen, and you believe that because Christ is risen, you who believe and you die will rise with Him as well, it should make all of our suffering in this world a lot less, shouldn't it? And so the question then becomes, 
today, are you willing to drop anything for the call of Christ? Or are you unprepared? But whether you are prepared or not prepared, you cannot escape the implications of Christ's coming nor what follows. For when you hear the message of the Gospel of God that the Kingdom is at hand, you must answer it. And either you answer by repenting and believing or you refuse. But you cannot be undecided. An undecided answer is a refusal to the grace of God. But we see that even in the calling of these four men, it is not their power, but it was God's power in action in calling them. We see God is the one capable of moving the hearts of men and women. You see, it is when we start to think that we have the ability, that we have the power to do this, that all the power is lost. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what was it that, God was, that Jesus Christ was, was gathering these men for? What are we told? He says He's going to teach them to be fishers of men. Now here He is giving us some imagery. A fisherman on his boat, he would have a round net with it would have been weighted on its edges and he would have tossed this into the sea and it would have sank to the bottom and there probably would have been some rope on it where he would have pulled up and the net would have enclosed and entrapped the fish in there. And now he applies that to human beings. They fished for fish in the sea. Now they're going to fish for men. And Matthew Henry, seeing the analogous nature of the text, says that just like fish in the sea, sinners wander endlessly in the great ocean of this world. And so now Jesus is calling these men to cast out their net through the proclamation of the Gospel, bringing people into His kingdom. And yet, this imagery does not just have an evangelistic bent to it. Oftentimes it's reduced to just that. But in the Old Testament, it actually had another meaning. In the Old Testament, this imagery of fishing for men oftentimes had to do with judgment. And so I think that that is true here as well. For the sake of time, we're not going to go over specifics, but I'll give you two texts that you can look at for yourself later on this day. Jeremiah 16.16 as well as Amos chapter 4, verse 2. And so what can also be true is that Jesus is calling disciples unto Himself. And He's saying for them to gather people by casting out their net from impending judgment. And so through the proclamation of the Gospel. Either you will repent and believe and flee the judgment or you will be caught up in the net. And you will experience then the judgment of God. This is why it is so important if you hear the Gospel today that you do not harden your heart as Christ has come into the world to save it. And yet it is only through Christ that anyone will enter the kingdom of life. And He uses that powerful, living Word to do it. 
A Word and a power that will never cease to draw sinners unto the Savior. And yet it is incumbent upon the church to simply be faithful to the message and proclaim it and allow the power of God to work because God is powerful and can draw all people to Himself. And so we'll close with this. If you have yet to trust in Christ and in believe in the Gospel of God, cry out to the Lord and repent and believe and you too will have everlasting life. Please, brothers and sisters, bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Your Word is holy and true and right. We submit ourselves before it this day. We pray, Lord, that You would impress upon our hearts the importance to remaining faithful to Your message, to remaining faithful to Your methods, to remaining faithful to the pattern that Christ and the disciples have granted to us. We pray, Lord, that You would continue to bless us, that You would continue to strengthen us by Your Word, and that You would use Your Word this day to bless us as we go forth into this darkened and sin-cursed world this day. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.